Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and I am thrilled today to have on an old friend, dear friend, and a brilliant critic, uh, Willard Spiegelman. Uh, Willard is our guest today, and he's come on the podcast to talk about a poet um, about whom he knows a great deal, Amy Clampett. Uh, the, the poem that Willard has chosen for our conversation today is called Losing Track of Language. And you'll be able to find um, a link to the text of that poem in the episode notes um, that I make available uh, with the episode, wherever you're finding it. Uh, let me tell you a little bit more about our guest today, and then we'll come around to talking about Clampett, of course, and the poem that Willard has chosen for us. Willard Spiegelman was, for many years, the Hughes Professor of English at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, and the editor of the Southwest Review. Um, he, he writes, still writes about books and the arts for the Wall Street Journal and does so regularly. Um, and Willard is the author of, I think, eight books of literary criticism and personal essay. Most recently, and perhaps, and certainly relevantly, and um, excitingly for our purposes here, Willard is the author of a book called Nothing Stays Put, The Life and Poetry of Amy Clampett, a biography of Clampett um, that was published by Knopf this year, 2023. The book is hot off the presses. I've just received my copy and, and I'll say more about it soon. Um, but Willard is a wide ranging critic and thinker and writer. Um, he has written academic books like um, The Didactic Muse, Scenes of Instruction in Contemporary American Poetry, which was published by Princeton in 1989, How Poets See the World, The Art of Description in Contemporary Poetry, published by Oxford University Press in 2005. And he's also, as I um, suggested a moment ago, uh, published essay collections, uh, books meant for uh, more general readership, uh, I'm thinking of a book like his Seven Pleasures, Essays on Ordinary Happiness, which was published by FSG in 2009. Uh, but in addition to the books that Willard has authored himself, he's the editor of Love, Amy, The Selected Letters of Amy Clampett, which came out from Columbia University Press in 2005. Um, let me say a word about, about Willard's work here in Nothing Stays Put, which, as I say, I received a day or two ago in the mail and proceeded to begin reading immediately and found the genial, pleasurable, generous uh, voice of the person I know there on the page. And, and it's been a delight to find it there. Uh, Willard is um, a perfect kind of biographer. He's, he's on the one hand, modest and reflective about the limits of his knowledge or the knowledge that any biographer might have of a subject, especially a subject who's gone. And yet he's also daring in terms of his own writerly style and reach, his own intelligence. Um, two, two moments in the prologue to the book stand out to me as indicating some of what I find so uh, disarming and refreshing about Willard's approach. He quotes, um, W.H. Auden, early in his book, and says, um, tells us about Auden's remark 
um, this was a remark that Auden made um, in giving a lecture as the Oxford professor of poetry. Auden said that he would ask himself two questions when, when reading a poem. The first, quote, here is a verbal contraption. How does it work? And the second, what kind of a guy inhabits this poem? And then Willard goes on to say this about that second question. He did not mean the sum of minute biographical facts about the author, but rather the kind of mind and temperament that we might infer by reasoning back from effect to cause. Uh, one wants, at least I want, when I, if I'm reading a biography of a poet, to know that the writer in whose hands I'm, I uh, have found myself um, cares not only about the minute particulars of the life of the person whose, whose work has brought me to the book, but cares also about the, imp the impression of the life, the kind of implied person created by the poems themselves. And Willard is attentive to that. Uh, having said that, he's also interested in and, um, and has done the work, has done the research to know everything he can know about the minute particulars of Amy Clampett's life. And he understands that we will want to know about those too. This brings me to my second point, also from the prologue to Willard's book. Here he's describing what counts as evidence of the life, and he's defending, in a way, his reliance on Clampett's self-reporting about her life, both in prose and in poetry. Willard says this, A writer who is bookish defines herself by what she has been reading and thinking about. The inner life, the life of the mind, is as urgent, demanding, and constitutive as the life lived. That, that seems to me like a salutary point to make in writing a biography. Um, I'm sure it's a pertinent point with respect to Amy Clampett. It also strikes me that it's an interesting self-description of the guest that I have the pleasure of talking to today. That is to say, to read Willard Spiegelman or to talk to him is to be invited into such a bookish life, one that's urgent, demanding, and constitutive of something both lived and livable. And so it's my great pleasure um, to welcome Willard Spiegelman to Close Readings. Willard, uh, you're joining us from Stonington, Connecticut, a place where I, th I think it must, must be the place I last saw you in the flesh. How are you doing today? And, and, and I'm, how, I'm, how is... I'm doing very well. I'm delighted to be here. Your introduction to me left me hungry for more. I think you could just go on <laughs> for the next hour. Nobody wants me. to hear that. But let me, let me, if I may, before we get to the poems, please. Uh, what you said at the very end of your introduction struck a chord in me, and it has to do with the kind of person Amy Clampett was, the kind of life she led, and especially in response to things like the uh, piece in the New Yorker last month about the death or the decline of the English major oh, by yeah. Nathan Heller. Uh, a piece which made me simultaneously want to put a gun to my head and also thank God that I got in and out of this profession while the getting was good. I don't think that the kind of life that this is not unique to Clampett, but the kind of life of a bookish person, 
uh, raised in the 20th century or the 19th century, a life that defined itself artistically through reading as the primary action is possible anymore. Mm. And as both Heller and his piece and all of, our, all of my friends who teach in English departments today say, you can't expect an English major to read Middlemarch or Moby Dick. When I was <laughs> that's an, just not that's not true. <laughs> when I, I have was, seen English majors do it, I well, see it all the time. When I was an English major sixty years ago, uh, when I was a senior, I took a seminar in Henry James. We read one novel a week, mm-hmm. one novel a week. Now that was not the only course I was taking. I was right. also taking other courses. I don't think kids today have the patience for that. But that kind of bookishness uh, was part of the uh, of the mind and the mindset of people like Amy Clampett, yeah. a farm girl who was desperate to escape, who found her own motivation and salvation through reading, which she inherited from her parents and her grandfather, who were all readers. Mm-hmm. Um, le- well, we will, in, in our own way, I guess... I guess I this whole enterprise of mine, this podcast, is a way of testing uh, the limits of um, the attention of contemporary um, of contemporary readers, listeners, um, people. Well, you, that you, is, you, you and I have the advantage. The little secret: it's easier to teach poetry because it's shorter. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe said, "I read poetry because it saves time," and in the classroom. If students come in and they haven't read their 100 pages of whatever it is for that day, there's no discussion. If they're reading a sonnet, well, it's right there on the page and they can make up something as they look at it and go ahead. That's right. So, so we'll be doing that today. <laughs> we, we're right. not quite a sonnet, something a bit bit longer than that, but but we we, we shall make it work. Um, Willard, you've already um, anticipated um, at least some of what I wanted to ask you before we get to the poem itself today, uh, which is to give us a little bit of background into Amy Clampett. She's um, certainly not an obscure name to poetry lovers, so, um, certainly not to, to people who have um, studied poetry of the 20th century, uh, but she, um, uh, she is maybe not a household name by the same token. And so I, th- I think some bit of um, contextualizing might be useful for our audience here. And, and of course, I know that I've just invited onto the podcast somebody who's written a 400-page book about her and could, could go on for, for more than the few minutes that I'm, that I'm granting you here. But if there is a kind of uh, thumbnail version of uh, Clampett's story that will help situate her for our listeners, that would be lovely to hear. And then I'm, I'm also curious, Willard, to know where or when it was that Clampett first showed up for you. As a, as a reader of poetry yourself? I'll, I'll do the first answer as expeditiously and quickly and smoothly as possible, <laughs> though I could talk about her for an hour without going too deeply. Uh, her dates are 1920 to 1994. She was the eldest of five children born on a farm. Her parents, her grandparents were Quaker farmers in New Providence, Iowa. She was sort of bookish and eccentric from the start. Her father, the farmer, was a Phi Beta Kappa Classics graduate of uh, Grinnell College. Um, 
Her mother, unusual for women of that generation, was also a college graduate. She had gone to what is now Michigan State, majoring in what something that now would be called home ec or some equivalent thereof. Mm -hmm. And the Clampets had five children. And one of the interesting things, that this is their Quaker background, they made sure, even in their poverty, that there was money for all five of their children, the daughters as well as the sons, to go to college. Mm -hmm. And in 1937, the very depths of the Depression, Amy went off to Grinnell, very eager to find like-minded people. And at the end of freshman year, her father wrote to the dean and said, I don't think Amy can come back because the crops are failing, it's too dry, it's too wet, whatever it is. And they had to work out some arrangement, not uncommon today, a combination of scholarship and work study so that Amy could get through. Much later, she was asked whether she ever considered going east to college. And mm -hmm. she said, east, we had no money. But of course, in 1937, very few Americans, most of them men, went to university of any sort. So that's an extraordinary thing right there. Right. She was given to language. She talked early. She uh, read early. And she was never not writing. What do, is we, most do we know, Willard, um, what her literary education at, at Grinnell was like? Oh, yes. I've read yeah. her student papers. Yeah. Uh -huh. And they're interesting. You know, a million years ago, everyone took four, uh, four semesters of composition. Mm -hmm. um, and that was independent of whatever the people were majoring in. But she was writing papers as a freshman and sophomore uh, of literary analysis, literary criticism, description, uh, in addition to certain kinds of creative uh, enterprises. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things is some of her professors wrote, this sounds like a poem to me. Why aren't you writing poetry? <laughs> Why are you writing prose? And I'll come to that mm. in a moment. Good. So she was bookish. But she needed to get out. And she said her great goal in life was to live near the ocean. Um, hmm. E.B. White, in his great essay, Here is New York, about 1947-48, said there are three kinds of New Yorkers, the ones who are born here, the ones who work here, and the ones who move here. Mm -hmm. And the greatest uh, version of the New Yorker is the immigrant, the one who comes there, either from mm -hmm. Europe or foreign country or from the farm, the small town, the misfits who want to come to where culture and other misfits are. Right. So when Amy was, uh, she got out of college at 20, she had skipped a year in elementary school. She was precocious. Um, she made a beeline to Manhattan and she enrolled in some kind of master's program at Columbia. We don't know what it was. She may have lasted one semester. She may have lasted two. People drop out of graduate school, as we know even today, for a variety of reasons. Sure. And um, then she got a series of jobs. And uh, she fetched up after a couple of years at Oxford University Press, where she mm -hmm. rose up to the position of a publicist for the, uh, um, the textbook department. But but she would she would have been still in New York though working yes. for Oxford yes, uh, yes. in New York yes. right uh -huh. she identified herself as a New Yorker for the rest of her life um, and she also fetched up to a studio apartment at three fifty four West Twelfth Street in nineteen forty three which she held on to until the very end of her life wow. and it was the kind of Virginia Woolfian room of one's own that mm -hmm. every person especially women cherish. And that kind of apartment now, it's around the corner from the new and glamorous Whitney Museum. Mm -hmm. That's out of reach, financial reach of, oh, it, of, of a working girl. It just doesn't happen. They can't live that way. But she had that apartment. And in 1949, she won a 
contest, an essay contest that OUP sponsored. Why do I want to go to England? So finally, like many Americans of her generation, Robert Lowell, James Merrill, Adrian Rich, James Wright, all of a sudden the continent had reopened. You know, it right. had been closed. Uh, the 30s were the Depression, the 40s were the war, was mm-hmm. the war. And then everybody started going back. And because she had always worshipped English culture and European culture especially, she was eager to go. She spent a month in England. It changed her life. She came back. And after another two years, she quit her job at the press entirely and went back to Europe for mm-hmm. another three-month trip. And and from that point on, from 1951 mm-hmm. until 1978, she lived in poverty. Her life parts of it are um, simply unknown to us um, Mm -hmm. because she was private. She was secret. She had a circle of friends. There were lovers. There were boyfriends. We sort of know some things about them. We sort of don't know things about them. But she was never not writing. And to me, one of the most mysterious and perhaps the most interesting facts about her as as an artist Mm -hmm. is the fact that although she was always a writer, she never found her genre until late in life. I mm. call her the patron saint of late bloomers, or one right. of them. I mean, there are many right. artists who are not discovered until late in life. But Amy thought that to be a writer, a serious writer, meant writing novels. Uh-huh. Poems were for adolescents. She wrote sonnets when she was 13 years old. So did her father and grandfather. Uh-huh. Uh, they wrote sonnets. Um, but she came to New York and thought, I have to write a novel. The interesting who, would, thing, who would have been the novelist, Willard, that would have stood out to her as models for the kind of novelist she wanted to be? She wanted to be Henry James. Okay. Or Hawthorne. Uh, but the novelists she most imitated were people like Thomas Wolfe and D.H. Lawrence. And what what is interesting to me is this. the um, One of my epigraphs to the book is the Latin motto, Poeta nascitur non fit. Poet is born, not made. Mm-hmm. But in her case, you have to qualify that. She was born as a writer, given to language. But she had to make herself or be made into a poet. Mm. And she wrote, it's, it's hard to tell from the papers, um, she wrote two or three novels, and there are various swaths of other pieces of prose that are parts of these things or versions of these things, which are in her papers at the New York Public Library, and they're just awful. Um, <laughs> they're, they're awful not because they're ungrammatical, unimaginative, mm-hmm. but they don't show the things that a novelist must have, which are two. One, an ability to tell a story with a sense of plot and development. And two, perhaps even more important, an understanding of how people operate, operate both within themselves and between or among themselves in society. Uh, she just didn't understand people. I'm jumping forward. At the a, very poet end, does, a poet doesn't need those things, Willard, or not, not in the same necessarily, degree. Not yeah. A poet uh-huh. knows, has to know how she feels or how she mm-hmm. works, but you can write a poem without people in it. You can't mm-hmm. write a novel without people in it. Mm-hmm. Um at the end of her life, she, she was always committed, especially later in life, to the Wordsworth Circle and to Coleridge. Um, she decided to write a play about the Wordsworths. It was dreadful. And <laughs> at this point, she spent three years on it. And at this point, because she was a famous person, people did her favors and gave readings of the play in Boston and Cambridge. And the audience, all of her friends, 
uh, eminent literary figures were so embarrassed they didn't know what to say. They right. said afterwards things like, oh, that cast was so good, or they read their <laughs> lines so well. It was awful. <laughs> Plays are about action. Mm-hmm. Uh, poems are not. What happened, and this is, I'm giving you perhaps a kind of vocational part of her biography here. Good. What happened was her, she became a poet with five jolts. Hmm. And I, I could read this to you, but it may take up too much of our time. Mm-hmm. In 1956, when she was 35 years old, Easter week, which is where we are exactly right mm-hmm. now, it occurs to me, in March 1956, she was at the Cloisters in Manhattan, and she was sitting on a stone, and there was piped in Gregorian chant. She was looking at the unicorn tapestries, and all of a sudden, she was struck by a shaft of light. And that dazed her, dazzled her, and she felt it was like a baptism, not of water, but of light. And it really struck her. And she went home. She went out into the gardens and made her way back to the subway and went home. And then a couple of weeks later, a couple of days later, she decided to commit all of this to her notebooks. And she began mm-hmm. to write, thinking that she would write a story. And she says, I think I will read this. May I? This, you this may, one of course. Please do. Let me see if I, can, if I can find this. Hold on one second. Which, uh, I'm going to fill some time while you look, Willard. Was she a reader of Dickinson at the, I mean, by Not then? Which, at the time. Dickinson yeah. came later. And you know Whitman, why I ask. I'm Whitman thinking of the certain later. slant of light. Yeah. Well, I use that line. I use that line in the book. She was worshiping the courtly muses of Europe until another jolt came to her and gave her an American boost, I see. which gave okay. her both Dickinson and Whitman. I think she's the only major 20th century poet to combine, very interestingly, these two mm-hmm. strands from our poetic grandfather and grandmother, Dickinson, uh-huh. and um, Whitman. Hold mm-hmm. on, hold on, hold mm-hmm. on. So she's in, she's in the cloisters. She sees the light. She wants to write a story about it. And predictably, that story doesn't doesn't go very far, and so instead, um, am I imagining the outcome of this correctly, Willard? She writes a poem, or will that yes, will, that's, will that ne- that's 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 exactly right. Um, I I can't find the passage, but that's your readers fine. will find that. But here's what happens: she says she sits down to write a story, and all of a sudden. The lines she was writing, the sentences broke into lines of poetry. Uh And then they started looking out for a rhyme. She said, I didn't seek the rhymes. They just came to me. And I found that uh, getting a rhyme was like uh, figuring out the end of a dominant chord in music. It just Mm -hmm. happened. Mm -hmm. That was the moment. And then she wrote a perfectly dreadful poem, uh, which was (laughs) never republished. So that was the first jolt. Okay. And then 10 years later, also at that point, I'm going back a moment, she was entering her religious phase. She never did anything by halves, and she was going to commit herself to Anglican theology. She went to a convent out in Mendham, New Jersey, with a thought potentially of becoming a nun. Mm-hmm. And she became very serious about uh, Episcopalianism. 
Ten years later, she gave up the church because she was throwing herself very wholeheartedly into political activism, especially anti-Vietnam uh, stuff. And she was dissatisfied with the way even the left-leaning Episcopal Church of New York City was not as left-leaning and protesting right. as much as she would want them to. So she gave up the church. She also gave up the church because at that point, she met the man who became her partner uh, for the rest of her life, a Columbia law professor, and that was Harold Korn. And all of a sudden, she realized, wait a second. And he was Jewish. His mother's family were killed in the camps by the mm-hmm. Nazis. Mm-hmm. She said, wait a second. Anti-Semitism is based in Christianity. Uh, mm-hmm. Christianity has as its basis the hatred of Jews. So mm-hmm. she gave up. She gave up the uh, mm-hmm. the church. How provided her with a kind of uh, emotional stability, mm-hmm. and they moved in together. She moved in with him in 1973 on the Upper East Side, and that's when the poems started coming. I she see. gave up fiction writing in 1966. He was the second part of this education. The third part came when, in 1973, they began going every summer to Korea, Maine, a little fishing village. And that was when she realized that um, she could write about Iowa, because for her, the ocean Mm. is just the cornfield in a different (laughs) medium. And that was a very Whitmanian thing and a very Keatsian thing for her to realize. Keats, too, always wanted to live near the sea. Mm -hmm. He didn't see the sea until he went to Margate briefly, Mm -hmm. and then he died, you know, in Naples and then in Rome. Mm. But he wanted to be near the ocean. Uh Amy wanted to be near the ocean. And the other thing was that the main lobsterman with whom she was uh, living for that month reminded her of Iowa farmers laconic, practical, conservative uh-huh. in the best sense. So uh-huh. the combination of people and landscape opened her up. The third thing that happened... Uh, I think we're up to four. What? We're up to four. I think we're up to in, four. That's right. The fourth thing that happened was that in 1977, in the fall, she um, took a creative writing course at the new school in the village. Now, the, the village is filled, was filled with you know lots of earnest, middle-aged, beatnik ladies who think they're going to be poets. And at this point, her teacher was a young buck. Uh, his name was Daniel Gabriel. He's my age. He now lives in Berlin. He's lived in Germany for many years. And he was rough and tumble. Uh, he was American. He was Whitman. He was Muriel Ruckheiser. Uh, mm-hmm. He was lefty. And mm-hmm. he thought Amy was just full of hot air. But they, And they sort of banged heads. Now, I That's once right. asked him, I couldn't ask her, whether another teacher would have had the same effect on her. The old Zen motto is, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Mm -hmm. And I think that Amy was ready. And so almost any course she was in would have uh, done Mm -hmm. this job for her. But the fact that she was up against somebody and sort of banging heads with them maybe made her stronger in her own conviction. So that's 1977. And the last piece of what made her a puzzle, there are three three things that... You said you said what what made her a puzzle, Willard. I'm sorry, which is a lovely Freudian slip. No, no, (laughs) she was a puzzle that made her a success. Made her a success uh, was this: the three things that constitute success in life are talent. She had talent, determination. She was never not writing, and luck, which is the one thing that you cannot control. In the 70s, she was doing freelance editing for a man named Jack McRae, who was the head of um, uh, Dutton Publishing. Uh, He just died last month at the age of 93. 
he was universally regarded as the best-looking man in publishing, and he was an old Harvard wasp preppy, a kind of Renaissance dilettante. And he and Amy were a perfect match because he was charming and bright, and she was diligent, and she was the best editor he ever had, especially with scientific texts, and he trusted her judgment. Well, at one point, she must have told him that she was a writer. He said, let me see what you have written. She showed him some of her fiction. He said, this is dreadful. She said, well, I'm also writing poems. So he, she gave him some of her poems, and he sent them to his friend, the poetry editor of The New Yorker, Howard mm-hmm. Moss. Mm-hmm. And Moss said, well, these are pretty good, but they're not quite right for us. That's the damning with faint praise right. that the editor will always use. Sure. And so um, McRae said, well, I'll send you some more. And he sent some more, and Howard liked one of them. Uh-huh. So Amy has the perhaps unique experience of coming home one day and finding a letter of acceptance of a poem she had no idea had been submitted. Yeah. And that's when she broke into The New Yorker in 1978. And that's when I, now this answers the second part of your right. question. That's how I, like many people, became aware of her. And when her poems, and they started rolling out in The New Yorker and then everywhere, when these appeared on the scene between 1978 and then the publication of her first book in 1983, people said, who is this? Right. No one was writing poems like this for a long time. The, the modes of the 60s and the 70s, especially after Robert Lowell became less Baroque and more confessional, the modes were for plain speech, right. regardless of subject matter, and or confessional um, outpourings. Mm-hmm. And Clampus poems were not like this. They were rich. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine once said years ago, sitting down and reading her poems is like eating a meal composed entirely of desserts. Right. They're very rich. And she once said um, in letters to her brother and sister in her days of poverty in the 50s and 60s, this is part of her uh, Iowa upbringing and her Quaker uh, ease of dealing with with matters of poverty. She said, I know how to live poor. And perhaps in compensation for that, she learned how to write rich. Uh Her earliest uh, favorite poet was Keats who was a great poet of compensation. And she once said, you can't really understand the Eve of St. Agnes unless you know what it's like to be cold. Uh. And she grew up in a house without central heating. And in in winter, it was cold. So she knew how Madeline felt. Her other early favorite poet, well, let's say Vincent Millay was an early favorite because Uh Amy was a teenage girl. When she got to New York in 1941, the first book of poems she bought was by Gerard Manley Hopkins, uh-huh. another person who knew how to convert poverty into richness. Sure. Well, Keats, Keats and Hopkins both have been subjects of previous conversations in this series. And, you know, it, it, it was in the conversation I had about Hopkins with Maya C. Popa. We talked about um, the great poem Spring and Fall. Um you know, Keats came up in that regard too, that Hopkins seemed to be a poet who had taken Keats's advice written in his letter to Shelley near the end of Keats's life to load every rift with ore. That is the, mm-hmm. the sense of a poetry that is, um, that, that is jammed full as, as full as it can be of, of the poet's material. 
Um, so it makes sense to me that, that um, to hear you describe Clampett in this way. Willard, I think we could go on talking about her life. Um, and, and I hope that we'll have occasion to, to wind our way back to her life in meaningful ways as, as our conversation goes on. But it strikes me that we're well enough into this conversation that we'd better give our listeners um, an example of her poetry to listen to. And I wonder if I could ask you uh, to be the one to read the poem that you've chosen for this conversation, Losing Track of Language, uh, for our listeners now. Would you be willing to do so, Willard? Willard, I think you've muted yourself. Yes, there I am. There you are back now. I had okay. a moment of panic, but the moment has been averted. Okay, so Willard, <laughs> read, her, read her, her poem to us. Okay, this is the second of her five volumes of, po- of poems from mm-hmm. Kanoff called What the Light Was Like. This is called Losing Track of Language. It's about a train trip. The train leaps toward Italy. The French Riviera falls away in the dark. The rails sing Dimeter shifting to Trimeter, a gallipade to a galliard. We sit wedged among strangers. Whatever we once knew, it was never much, of each other, falls away with the landscape. Words fall away. We trade instead in flirting and cigarettes. We're all rapport with strangers. The one with the yellow forelock that keeps falling and being shaken back again, syncopating the dimeter trimeter gallopade into galliard, is, it seems, Italian. Recently a pilgrim to the Vaucluse, where Petrarca, to the noise of waterfalls, measured out his strict stanzas, little rooms for turmoil to grow lucid in, for change to put on more durable leaves of bronze, a scapular of marble. A splutter of pleasure at hearing the name is all he needs, and he's off like a racehorse at the palio, plunging unbridled into recited cadenzas, thick, I'm sorry, plunging unbridled into recited cadenzas, three-beat lines interleaving a liquid pentameter. What are words? They fall away into the fleeing dark of the French Riviera, as once a shower of bloom, una pioggia di fiore, descended into the lap of the Trecento. Her hair, all gold and pearl, the grass still warm as when she sat there, six centuries gone by, that squandered heartbeat, The Black Plague took her, young, now fossilized as bronze, as carved laurel. Whatever is left of her is language. And what is language but breath, leaves, petals fallen or in the act of falling, pollen of turmoil that sifts through the fingers? Econosha! I ask it to keep the torrent of words from ending, to keep anything from ending ever. Anke Safo? Yes, he knows, he will oblige. 
the liquid pentameter gives way to something harsher. Diphthongs condense, take on an edge of bronze. Though I don't understand a word, what are words? Do these concern one Timas, led before she was married, or so one leaf of what's left would have it, to the dark bedroom of Persephone? For so long, nowhere at home, either here or there, forever returning and falling back again into the dark of these 10,000 years? The train leaps toward Italy. Words fall away through the dark, into the dark bedroom of everything left behind, the unendingness of things lost track of, of who, of where, where I'm losing track of language. Well, that was beautifully done. Thank you, Willard. Thank you. Uh, I'm sorry for the little bl- blip in the middle, and maybe I should just offer a little bit of... The blip uh, is what makes it human. That's well, how we know. <laughs> what about a little bit of footnoting your Well, yeah. I'm gonna, I was going to ask for that. So, so help okay. us. Help us. Find uh, Petrarch, what, what are the things Pe- that need glossing. Well, Petrarch. Well, mm-hmm. go before Petrarch. The galopade and the galliard are both dance forms. The galopade is an 18th century form, which involves lots of leaping. It's also known as a gallop, and it's a two-beat dance. And a galliard is a uh, an older Renaissance kind of dance, which involves a triple meter with leaps and mm-hmm. uh, jumps. And I suppose what she's trying to do is to imitate the sounds of what she hears in the tracks beneath her. Uh-huh. Uh da dum da da dum da dum da da dum da dum da da dum on and on and on and on. Yeah, and you yeah. hear that you hear that uh, a little bit in some of the you know, she's not a regular formal poet, but mm-hmm. a splutter of pleasure at hearing the name. A splutter of pleasure at hearing the name is all he need needs, and he's off like a racehorse at the Palio, the great horse race in Siena. Uh, and Petrarch, of course, the man who, as I learned in junior high school, invented the Renaissance by <laughs> climbing, climbing the mountain just to see the view. Okay, uh, and that's that's how the Renaissance began. That's how humanism I began. See. Okay, according to Fair. my junior high school teachers. Fair and enough. That's, that's as good as anything else. That seems like uh, good authority. But he also, we might say, invented the sonnet uh, mm-hmm. devoted to his beloved Laura. Who's, who's, who's sort now, of introduced without being named in the second stanza of this poem. Right? She's Laurel. being described. That's yeah. right. Uh-huh. And of course, she died young. The Black Plague took her young. And he once described her uh, as a shower of bloom, una pioggia di fiord, um, mm. a rain shower of blooming. And so it's interesting. This, this uh, poem has three stanzas. They are 18 yeah. lines long. Yeah. And that's an interesting form. There is a form called the heroic sonnet. Uh, Dunn wrote one. It's 18 lines of quatrains. Now, why did she pick 18? It's longer than a sonnet. It's shorter than something else. Right. Uh, and she has three of them. And one is devoted to the, uh, the train. And then the next two are devoted, with interleavings, uh, to the two poets whom she is talking about we're talking to her uh, companion about one is Italian and then the third is Greek. So she goes from uh, Petrarch and the Renaissance to Sappho and archaic Greece. Do you know Econosha? Anke Sappho? Do you also know Sappho? 
asks, he does. She, she asks in Italian. Yes, she right. asks in Italian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ask her to keep the torrent of words from ending, to keep anything from ending ever. Remember, this is on a train trip, and it's going, ba-bum, ba-ba-bum, ba-bum, ba-ba-bum. Mm-hmm. And she, who was by her own admission a garrulous creature, uh-huh. loves language and wants the torrent of words to keep going on and on and on. And they are in English. They are in Italian. They are a little bit in Greek. She doesn't understand the Greek, but what are words? What right. are words? Yeah, yeah. Well, so we'll come back to that. And, and um, but, but maybe just in the spirit of um, contextualizing things for people, as you did with Petrarch, um, is it worth saying a word about what Sappho would have meant to... Um, someone on a train in the middle of the 20th century in um, going from France to Italy. Like, what did Sta- Sappho stand for in the European imagination at that time? Or, or what should we know about Sappho that might be relevant to this poem, Willard? Sappho is the great, the 10th muse. Uh, Sappho is uh, the great Greek woman, lyric poet, very few of whose words still, or I'm uh, uh, let me repeat that, only words and fragments and leaves of Sappho uh, exist. Uh, little pieces, little leaves, little fragments. Uh, only a couple of poems survive intact. And one of her poems is about Timas, the girl who died before her wedding day, who goes to the bedroom of Persephone um, mm. underneath to mm-hmm. be the bride of Pluto. And I have, actually, I'll give you, I found on the web one very nice eight-line translation of that into modern English. Mm-hmm. This dust was Timas, and they say that almost on her wedding day, she found her bridal home to be the dark house of Persephone, and many maidens, knowing then that she would not come back again, unbound their curls, and all in tears, they cut them off with sharpened shears. A female lyric poet, I mean, that's uh-huh. what, she, what she would have been, I think, especially to somebody like Clampett, who, mm-hmm. late in life, uh, in part to honor her father, went back to learn Greek at the new school, and then at mm. Hunter College in 1982. Uh-huh. She wanted to learn Greek. She didn't uh-huh. think that she was properly educated until she could know Greek. And it's just so I've got the chronology right, so that would have been well after the incident that's um, memorialized by this poem, but um, closer in time to the writing of the poem. Have I got that right, Willard? That that this this poem, in other words, describes a, a train journey that she took in the 50s, but she didn't write the poem until the 80s. Is that right? That's right. Uh, I found the germ of this poem in her travel books or mm-hmm. journals that were compiled in 1951 and 52 which, like her novels, she tried to get published but failed to. Yeah. Okay. And I'll read you. And this is very interesting because the, the original prose version of this, first of all, and this shouldn't make too much difference, she's writing about her not going from Italy to France. 
from France to Italy. Not going from France to Italy, but going back to France from Italy. I see. That's the germ. Um, Oh, so she's changed the direction of the trip for the poem. She's changed the direction of the trip. That's interesting. We'll come back to that. It may be. It may be. Uh, as, As she was going back to France from Italy, she said she felt like a snake shedding one skin to reveal another or a sleight-of-hand artist changing costumes. Hmm. And here's her line in the journal. The spell of his language, she's talking about the guy Mm -hmm. sharing the compartment with, the spell of his language still hung upon me like a beautiful and inappropriate mantle of which it was necessary to be divested before I could pull together enough shreds of French to ask for a hotel room. (laughs) That's funny. And I comment in my book, the spinning of similes and metaphors, snake, costume changes, beautiful and inappropriate mantle, shreds of French, tells us that a poet with her natural gift for metaphor has been doing the writing and that she will rediscover herself, but not for a while. She had other mantles to put on and remove and other skins to shed. I'm going to make the awful joke so you don't have to. She was a poet and she didn't know it, Willard. Well, you know, that's absolutely true. And she used to have little dinner parties in her in her fifth-story walk-up, and her friends, her girlfriends would come over and they would have a, uh, a kind of meal and have some wine, and Amy would read from her novels, her work in progress, and then the women would all leave and go down to the subway or walk home, and they would all shake their heads and say, Amy's a poet. She's not uh-huh. a novel writer. Well, let's she talk- was the last to know. Yeah, I, guess, I suppose so. Let's, let's, um, I, before we dive in, uh, because, and I'd like to, to be able to spend some time with you on each of the three stanzas that you've described, I, I just want to linger a bit longer over the, um, what you noted as the perhaps unusual, but in, in any case regular or apparently intentional kind of structural division of the poem into these three long stanzas. So I guess, what's the question? Was that characteristic of Amy Clampett to, um, to write in that way? She, she's, she's referring in the first couple lines of the poem and you so beautifully demonstrated what she might have been hearing and trying to describe to Demeter and Trimeter, but, her poem itself isn't doesn't seem to me anyway to be in any kind of regular meter, but she does have this, I mean, uh, this sense of a structural division into three equal parts, and I'm wondering if that tells you, Willard, something about the way her imagination works or the way she's trying to render experience. Perhaps one thing we know about her poetry, I'm not going to qualify this. Several things we know about her poetry are this. First, she liked rich diction. Second, her poems are often a little short on action, but very heavy on lists and nouns. This is something she owes to, or at least shares with Whitman. Mm -hmm. Third, she wrote more poems that are one sentence long than any other contemporary poet. Though, of course, many of those sentences, depends on how you really define a sentence. Many of those sentences are cut up with semicolons, so they could be otherwise. In other words, she had a, a, a tendency for chunkiness, uh, blocks. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I think here she wants to give you the sense of three solid blocks right. of verse right. uh, that are standing in contrast to the ongoing movement of the trip that she's taking. The dumb literalist in me wants to wants to see them even as cars of a train or something like that. Um, but but perhaps that's stretching the kind of mimetic. Well, she talks about stanzas Mm -hmm. as rooms for things to grow light in. Yeah, these are rather elongated rooms. (laughs) These are elongated rooms. They are are sort of uh, longer than a sonnet. Mm -hmm. They're not quite a heroic sonnet. They're not rhymed quatrains. She did use rhyme sometimes very strictly. Mm -hmm. She did write sonnets Mm -hmm. and sometimes very loosely. Right. Um, Okay. So here, here's here's another question for you then, Willard, that that um, situates us for the time being, anyway, more more firmly in the first of these three stanzas. Um, you've you've already said some some really lovely things about those first three lines, but my question comes immediately after them. I'll read the lines again, and then I have a question for you about them. We sit wedged among strangers, whatever we once knew, it was never much of each other, falls away with the landscape. Words fall away. We trade instead in flirting and cigarettes. We're all rapport with strangers. Um, I'm struck by that double falls away, or first it's falls away and then it's um, fall away, the plural version of the verb. So knowledge falls away, then words fall away. And what replace knowledge and words are uh, flirting and cigarettes. Mm-hmm. A rapport with strangers. Um, you've described Clampett as a poet um, who is, um, and perhaps this wasn't exactly the word you used, but is fond of a kind of ornate diction. Mm-hmm. That is, a, she's a lover of words. We we have evidence of that already in the Gallipade and Galliard and so forth. Um, but here it seems it seems as though something is coming that that is she's making a claim. Maybe you don't believe it. That, that words are falling away and something else that seems very much unlike them, flirting and cigarettes, um, I don't know, maybe they're not so unlike, comes to replace words and knowledge. So t- talk about that moment, Willard, and what flirting and cigarettes are doing here. Okay, for one thing, I think you're a little bit wrong. Uh, Good. For Clampett, this is a fairly chaste poem. Mm-hmm. This is not as wordy or as rich or as dense as a lot of the others are. Uh-huh. And I think that's because she is doing, she's paying perhaps two kinds of homage to Elizabeth Bishop, whom she liked very much as a poet. And it's interesting from the historical point of view, Elizabeth Bishop died just as Amy Clampett was coming up. This is the very late 70s. Um, One of the things that Clampett liked but she hated, she loved travel. She hated flying. All of her trips to Europe, with very few exceptions, were done by boat. And all of her trips in the United States were done by train or even better, by bus. She loved bus rides. Are you going to talk about the moose? I hope so. <laughs> and the, one of the greatest bus ride poems in English is The Moose, of course. And so this is her version. And there are other bus ride poems that she writes that really do have that same kind of homage. And this goes back in part to her Quakerness. Mm-hmm. A bus ride is a packed 
container, oh, like a stanza, yeah. in which there are many people or some people who constitute a kind of community. Think about Quaker meeting, people sitting together in silence until the moment when one person wants to speak. So there is unity and individuality. There is speech and silence either simultaneously or consecutively. And there's also, in regard to the homage to Bishop, look at that little parenthetical. Yes. Whatever we knew, it was never much. That's right out of Bishop. Bishop is the great, what is this feeling? We all feel this great sensation of joy. You know, Bishop was the great uh, poet of the unexpected but perfectly natural parenthetical phrase. Right. And I'm sure Clampett is aware of that here. Now, here's here's a difference, though, between the moose and that kind of journey in this. What Bishop overhears in that mm-hmm. poem, and, and, we'll, and I'll make that poem available to, to listeners here if you don't know it, it may be my favorite poem of all the poems there are. Uh, what Bishop overhears is, is not somebody reciting Petrarch or Sappho, but kind of ordinary, homely, non-poetic conversation, right? Which Barely heard, overheard. Right, right. Um, she doesn't hear anything like the kind of performance. She doesn't engage with um, the other um, uh, riders of the bus. She's a kind of almost invisible overhear um what's john stuart mill right poetry overheard right right so so this feels this feels i i I take your point that there is perhaps a kind of homage to bishop here but there seems to be another kind of energy at work as well that's interested in a kind of um liveliness or engagement with poetic tradition as such you know there's that and there's also again going back to the knowledge of the woman she was jittery and nervous, and everybody described her as bird-like. She was very enthusiastic and fluttery. And when she read her poems, uh, she almost sounded like a little girl, the way Marilyn Monroe would have sounded had she had her great dream of becoming an intellectual. Mm. Uh, and she had to develop breath control to articulate those very long sentences that I've described. But this is a kind of social scene. We don't know Mm -hmm. the man with whom she's traveling. I mean, maybe it was a boyfriend she picked up en route. He's not even part of the the equation. He drops out of the poem as as soon as he appears uh, for the appearance of this other person who comes in. And I think it's because, and this is another difference between her and Bishop, Amy was a real kind of intellectual in the way that uh, Bishop wasn't. I mean, uh, she was bookish in in that very academic way. And so her life was formed with books and in language. So when she hears somebody or meets somebody with whom she can enthuse about Petrarch or about Sappho, this is a kind of electric and almost sexual thrill that she's receiving. A splutter of pleasure. Splutter of pleasure is all that he needs, all that she needs, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, what's um, how do you hear Willard the tone of this? Um, I mean, I'm imagining other kinds of you know possible poetic versions of this train ride, in which the man who takes center stage to um, to recite Petrarch is ironized or lampooned in some way. 
that doesn't seem to be the tone here. How, how do you understand the um, the kind of stance that the uh, the implied Amy Clampett of the you know who is who is the poet here takes towards this man who and his pleasure in reciting these lines? Does she share it? Does she? Um, where does she stand in relation to it? I think this is a dream come true, and I think irony is about as far as away as anything yeah. could be, mm-hmm. because the word she, she once said in a letter, "I don't understand why people are so afraid of seeming enthusiastic uh-huh. about things." And this is a great passion for her. And again, it has to do, I think, with something I said, or is related to something I said before. For a life that had been lived in poverty, for a life that had been lived away from culture, mm-hmm. from what she thought of as the, um, the, the the bed of Western culture in, in Europe, this is making the past come alive to her in very, very vibrant ways because she doesn't want the torrent of words from ending. She wants to keep everything going at this intense right. pace forever. And so one of the points of balance in the poem is the balance between the ongoing movement of the train and the ongoing movement of the language, the torrent that is coming out, and torrent picks up the word of, of the, uh, the shower of bloom from earlier right, on. Right. Um, all of this energy and all of this uh, beautiful outpouring of language and bookishness against her understanding that everything is being lost at the same time. And one way to measure the um, wholeness or the integrity of the poem is just to trace through it all of the words that are either related to fall, fell, Mm -hmm. falling, or loss, losing, and then with leaves and left, Mm-hmm. In there, you know, it's about nature and it's about history and the processes of loss and rebirth and reimagining or metaf- metamorphosing into something solid. And the solidness can be scapular of marble, mm-hmm. more durable leaves of bronze, mm-hmm. or the pages of a book the leaves of a book or the leaves that have been left even from the, uh, the, the minuscule number of words we have from Sappho herself. Right. Or the, or the transformation of Laura, Petrarch's Laura mm. into, into all gold and pearl. Right. Uh, but then, but then also into language. That's right. And, 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 and this brings me, so these are lines from the end of the second stanza and, and they follow well, there's this kind of repeated um, question that's asked in the poem. It's asked both in the second and in the third stanza. What are words? Um, the um, that question is followed by this description of Laura, who you know is is not only the object of Petrarch's love, but also you know um, is. Uh, memorialized or elegized in in, in Petrarch's um, poems too. Whatever is left of her is language, and what is language with breath? But breath, leaves, petals fallen, or in the act of falling, pollen of turmoil that sifts through the fingers. Um, can, can, Willard, can you gloss those those lines for us? Um, that is, what what is the 
what is that showing you about um, about what language meant to this poet? I think it meant meant everything to this poet, <clears throat> but we also are alert to the fact that language is present orally, but also literarily on a page. What is left of Laura is words, but these are words we read. She's in the process now of hearing and speaking words, and those words are ephemeral and evanescent, like any physical experience, whereas the words here are more written down than pollen of turmoil that sifts through the fingers. Mm. And that and earlier you referred to um, the the recognition that Clampett seems to be operating under that all here is being lost that um, experience as soon as it's had is is evanescent to use the word that you you, you just used. Um, I suppose it's the 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 kind of speed of the train's progress through the landscape that is making that seem kind of literal and evident and um, obvious to um, to Clampett and the others on the train that that whatever is taken in through the windows of the train, in other words, is immediately gone and then immediately gone again and so forth. But that language feels like that also that one hears it and it's gone. Well, and this is why that uh, sentence I read from her journal about a snake shedding a skin mm-hmm. or changing a costume from one outfit to another is the equivalent in a different form of changing languages. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that for her, a community of polyglots would be heaven on earth in which people were all speaking. And, and actually there's a pendant poem to this written years later called Babel on the, um, what is it called? I'll find this for you in a moment. Well, it may, sorry, and I think you've just muted yourself again, Willard, inadvertently there. But the um, the you know it, it strikes me that there is um, here I am, here I am. Yeah, no, you're here, and I hear you. The, let, uh, let me just give you this title: yeah, Babel aboard the Hellas International Express. Uh-huh. Uh huh. It was a kind of nightmare poem uh, on a on a train filled with strangers and people who are. Um, yelling and screaming and passports are taken away and people are smoking and the toilets aren't working. Yeah. And, and uh, it's just dreadful. And this was a train trip she made in the 80s with her friend, an actor named Peter Kyber, and it was going from Greece up into Munich and it was going through the Balkans. And it was the kind of thing that's fun to read about, but I think most <laughs> of us w- would rather die than take that kind of train trip. But there it was. It was babble. It was just right. all babble in a million yeah. Serbian tongues and dialects yeah well here you know we have the french riviera we have italian we have of course um greek in the form of um uh sappho represented as well we'd said early you'd pointed out earlier that the um she's reversed the direction of the trip of the original trip and Mm -hmm. rather than um uh, writing the poem about a trip from Italy back to France. She's doing it the other way around. And I said, oh, well, that seems interesting to me. I'll lay cards on the table here and see what you think of them. Um, that allows her to move from from France th- through Italy. And ultimately, the, the journey that isn't taking her there, the 
the poetic journey the stanzas are to Greece. To me, that suggests a kind of keeping in mind the way you described Clampett's fascination with European culture and the kind of um, uh, canonical unfolding that that one inherits um, a movement back in time, um, back through stages of what Clampett might have taken to be the kind of pinnacles of European civilization or something, going back to a source rather than um, than from the past into the future. She's moving west to east, in other words, um, back to Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, does that does that strike you as a kind of ambition she might have felt? Um, Yes, uh, it could. It could also be a mistake on her part. That sure, it could be. Mis- misremembering this. Well, think of it this way. We're talking about crossings. Petrarch went from Italy to France and back, and Clampett is going from France to Italy mm-hmm. and back. Mm-hmm. And um, Greece is still out of the picture in terms of her real life, uh, both in this poem and in her actual life at this point in 1951, or whenever it is that the poem uh, took place. But it's there in her bookish life, to go back it's, to that. It's there in her bookish life. It's there in her imagination, sure. So let's, let yeah, oh, sorry, did you have another thought? No, 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 okay. go on. Yeah, no, well then, I, you know, I, I'd want to hear you say something about the way the poem ends. Uh, which well, brings, it, it, yeah. it, it, it ends, and this would be perhaps a, an unconscious homage on her part to what M.H. Um, Abrams called the romantic nature lyric, hmm. a poem like Tintern Abbey mm-hmm. or Frost at Midnight mm-hmm. uh, or This Lime Tree Bower in My Prison, which rounds back to its beginning at its ending. Uh, so the poem ends in a kind of circular fashion, back where it begins, which is another way of answering your question about west to east and east to west and does it make any difference. Mm-hmm. But it ends with the repetition of uh, of the opening line. The, the train, train leaps toward Italy. Right. Yeah. Words fall away. And uh, everything is falling away. And there is a sense of vertigo at the end. I mean, the falling and the leaving and what has been left behind and what has been lost is countered by what is gain, gained. Uh, the, unend- the, the poem ends with a, almost with the word unendingness. So you have a sense of something ongoing, the unendingness of things lost track of, of who, of where, where I'm losing track of language. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I think there is a sense that um, all of this stew, uh, I'll use the word babble, but it's not quite that, all of this stew is a very rich meal for her to eat, the combination of English and Italian and Greek. And she's losing track of it, but she's also gaining traction through language, because language is what is providing the point of contact uh, mm. between her and this man whom she meets on the train, whom presumably she will never see again, mm. whose name whose name she doesn't know. Mm-hmm. The one with the yellow forelock. It's an interesting description he gets. 
Well, she's talked about the horse race at the Palio. Yeah, maybe. So here you have a forelock. Maybe that's it. Yeah, I, I, I want to. I want to linger just a moment longer before we end today with the, on that on the phrase "losing track of language" and to think about what that might mean. I suppose if you're, you know, if you if you're attending to a bit of language long enough, you may it may begin to not make sense to you anymore, or it may sound less like meaningful utterance and more like Mm -hmm. ambient music or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly we're in a context on this train, as we've already described, that's multilingual and that, that maybe that creates a kind of, like you said in referring to the companion piece, a kind of babble like confusion or the potentiality of such a thing. But, but I, I think what I'm hearing you describe is a kind of a apparently paradoxical feature of what it means to be a poet for Clampett, which is that somehow for her, losing track of language is, is part of what constitutes the art of poetry. And that would sound, I think, almost nonsensical to somebody who didn't have the context of this poem or the context that you've provided to make sense of it, but it begins to make sense to me now. Can you say more, Willard, about the phrase losing track of language and and why Clampett might have been so attached to it? It seems like a curious thing for a poet to celebrate. We use the phrase losing track of to refer to various kinds of things. I'm losing track of um, mm. well, where it was you meant to travel. I'm going yeah. back to Elizabeth right. Bishop. Right. Uh, I'm losing track of um, the right direction. Or it I'm suggests losing... that you've been following something. You've been, you've, fo- you've and, been following and you've and lost, I've lost the... track yeah. of mm-hmm. it. Uh, or you're, you're on the trail of something mm-hmm. and then you've lost the scent or you've lost the track. Uh, And there must be some pun here on the train tracks, but go on. Sure, 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 sure. I mean, that's that's right. Mm -hmm. Um, That's right. The track, the track, going down the track. Going down the track suggests a specific destination Mm -hmm. that you were going to. I'm losing Mm -hmm. track of this. I'm I'm gaining. I think the poem is deliberately intended to show how loss and gain function either simultaneously or sequentially. If if Robert Frost says poetry is what is lost in translation, we can say that language, we can say that understanding is what is gained when you don't understand the language. I mean, this is Mm -hmm. what Eliot meant when he said poetry can be understood before it is... Poetry can be communicated before it is understood. Mm, mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of understanding because she knows enough of Romance languages yeah. to know French and Italian. But it's not they're not natural to her. It's like shedding the garment, putting on a new suit of clothes. And the other thing is I think we all, unless we are perfectly bilingual, have the sense when engaged or trying to engage in a conversation in a foreign tongue 
of just becoming flummoxed and um, sort of desperately reaching or grasping for a cognate. And if it's right. not the right word, maybe you come up with something in a kind of franglais or mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. something that's half this and half that because learning a language can be terribly tiring that sounds exhausting and that's what she's Uh she's expressing a sense of exhilaration that has a concomitant sense of exhaustion oh that's beautiful yeah that's that's lovely and it you know it makes me think that when when you know when language when when we struggle to make sense of it or to follow it perhaps because the language isn't our first language or perhaps because we're exhausted and on a train and um and we've lost track of the conversation it strikes me that what might happen in the wake of that loss is the kind of um language ceases to be referential and instead becomes like thing-like itself right it it becomes the just in that beautiful way you were doing at the beginning of our discussion of this poem helping us see the way the sound of the train on the tracks was producing mm-hmm. a kind of dimeter or trimeter um the it sounds like the the discourse that's coming out of this man on the train is itself producing a kind of sound that she is going to keep even if she's missing its meaning. I think that's right. And also to go back perhaps to the moose, when Bishop says, we feel, we all feel this sweet sensation of joy. Mm -hmm. That nice parenthetical remark. Remember what Clampett says here in the penultimate line is that one of the things, some of the things she's losing track of are of who, of where. Yeah. Uh, And that, losing track of where we are that explains perhaps the confusion about italy and france and where the border is and when do you when do you turn off your french and turn on your italian and who am i in all of this um here she is she has essentially lost her own identity perhaps subsuming it into the conversation with a perfect stranger sounds like a kind of all rapport i mean it it, it is like a um I don't want to say it's a moment of grace, but it's a moment of coming together. Mm. Uh, and I'm reminded, one of my favorite poets, again, somebody re- recently dead, who's probably not much read, at least in this country, is Tra- the Englishman Charles Tomlinson, mm-hmm. who has a wonderful poem called The Chances of Rhyme, which begins, the chances of rhyme are like the chances of finding. In the finding fortuitous, but once found, Binding. Yeah. I misquoted that. The chances of rhyme are like the chances of meeting in the finding fortuitous, but once found binding. Yeah. So that's sort of what Clampett was saying about how when she was writing these lines down in the um, yeah. the cloisters, the rhymes right. just came. Right. And so here she meets a stranger, and all of a sudden there's a kind of explosion of energy through language and reference, and flirting, and cigarettes, and and almost the kind of adolescent, but not just adolescents have this, that feeling you might have when you meet somebody for the first time, and there may be romance or sexuality involved in all of this, and on the one hand, there's a great immediate sense of intimacy. I feel I've known this yeah. person all my life. Right. On the other hand, since it's a total stranger, everything that person says or does or um, confesses to you is new. 
And if you have the sense fam- because you... And familiar, and familiar. That's you right. Know, I, f- I feel I've known this person all my life, but of course I haven't. Yeah, and if, and, if, and if you have met this person on a train or on a plane or a bus or whatever, um, there is the added license that comes with the, with the recognition that you will probably never see them again or talk that's to right. them again. And that, that's part of what produces that, that sudden intimacy, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe to, to, um, as a kind of final observation here, we can say that there's a kind of interesting lurking theory here that the intimacy created between a poet and her reader can feel like that. Sometimes. Oh, that's very nice. Thank you, know, you Comrade. That yeah. sudden kind of intimacy, which um, which will end not as soon as you get off the train, but as soon as you close the book. You know, we sit wedged among strangers. That's right. And wedging produces intimacy. It sure does. <laughs> well, that's lovely, Willard. Uh, I don't think I don't think I could I can add anything to that. And I want to thank you um, for the conversation. I've really enjoyed it. It's been a it's been a pleasure and a privilege for me to learn about Amy Clampett with you. And I hope that if nothing else, this conversation will send some of our listeners to your book and to Clampett's poems, of course. Um, which especially which, to hers, especially oh, to hers. Sure. I'm, this is my zealot's mission in Good. life. Good. Good. Well, I'm I'm happy to have taken advantage of your sense of purpose in <laughs> in drafting you onto the onto the podcast to spread the word of Amy Clampett. Um, Willard Spiegelman, thank you very much, and dear listeners, thank you for for making it on this journey with us. I'll have more for you soon. <laughs>